The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Darling, you say you want to write a book? Well, then you must listen to Writers on Writing, darling. Authors, literary agents gabbing and babbling about the art and the business of writing. Thursdays, 5 p.m. Darling, you must. Barbara DeMarco Barrett, she hosts. Yeah, listen, darling. On KCI FM in Irvine. KUCI is now podcasting its public affairs shows. The podcasts are available on www.kuci.org slash podcasts. That is www.kuci.org slash p-o-d-c-a-s-t-s. Good evening, and welcome to Privacy Piracy. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and live audio streaming at KUCI.org. I'm Lloyd. I'm this show's engineer and co-host sometimes with Mari, and you'll find out about our great VIP guests and shows at www.kuci.org slash privacypiracy. Let me tell you a little bit about Mari. She's a local attorney and privacy consultant. She's the author of several books, including her two new books, Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She's testified many times in the California legislature and U.S. Congress and hosted her own 90-minute PBS special that they still air from time to time called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. She's been featured on 48 Hours, Dateline, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, and a lot of other shows. So... Let's get started, Murray. Oh, I am so thrilled tonight. We have a woman who is a fantastic privacy expert, and she really knows what's happening in privacy and identity theft. We're going to be speaking with Betsy Broder, and she is the Assistant Director of the Federal Trade Commission's Privacy and Identity Theft Division. In fact, many years ago when I went to the Federal Trade Commission, and I had been a victim myself, as you know, I got to meet Betsy, and Betsy has been around in many, many positions. So let me tell you a little bit about her. She helps coordinate the agency's law enforcement and outreach efforts on privacy issues. This includes data security and identity theft. She also oversees the FTC's other identity theft initiatives, such as working with law enforcement agencies and outreach like consumer education. She's testified many times herself before Congress, and she has been interviewed on many television shows. She's been on NPR. She's been uh, quoted myriad times in the newspapers, and uh, so she's real savvy, and we're lucky that she's coming all the way to Irvine from Washington, D.C. She formerly served as assistant director of the FTC's Division of Marketing Practices, and there she supervised consumer fraud litigation in federal court. And during her tenure at the FTC, Betsy has also led the investigation and civil prosecution of some bad guys like telemarketing, boiler rooms, Internet pyramid schemes, and business and franchise um, scams. 
So she's also served as an assistant to the FTC's director of the Bureau of Consumer Protection. So we're so thrilled that she's here to tell all of us who every single one of us are consumers, and I think she is wonderful. Thank you, Betsy, for coming all the way from Washington, D.C. Well, Mari, it's just a, a delight to be talking with you tonight on an issue that we both think is critically important for all consumers. Oh, so many things have happened. Tell me, I know you've been at the FTC a long time, but how did you become interested and involved in privacy and identity theft at the FTC? I think my professional interest developed as, as the interest in society at large developed. I think there has been identity theft for a long time, except suddenly it seemed to have reached a critical um, public um, mass, and people suddenly realized that perhaps the risk was greater than they had assumed in the past. Also, there really was never a term to describe what happens when someone takes your information and uses it to commit fraud. So it was the confluence of a greater public awareness Congress actually passed a law, as you know, uh, in the late 90s, criminalizing identity theft on the federal level and putting the FTC front and center in terms of coordinating a national strategy to approach this, both by helping consumers, working very closely with criminal law enforcement, and particularly helping victims, people who have endured this um, dreadful crime themselves, who often don't know where to turn. I know in recent years it's become much more publicized about the Federal Trade Commission and all the great work that you do. And I remember, you know, many times people have said to me, well, what does the Federal Trade Commission have to do with identity theft? Can you tell a little bit about what the role is with the Federal Trade Commission? I know the Identity Theft Deterrence Act really set you as the clearinghouse for identity theft. So tell us a little bit more so people know how to go to you and what they can get, uh, what kind of help they can get. That's a, that's a great question because, Maury, I think a lot of times when people know about the Federal Trade Commission, they think of the Do Not Call Registry, one of our most popular um, initiatives where we give consumers a very quiet dinner hour once again. But we also have been involved with issues of consumer privacy well before Congress passed the law that criminalized identity theft. We are the agency that enforces the laws having to do with your credit report and uh, the, the Fair Credit Reporting Act in particular. And this is critical to people who experience identity theft because one of the frequent harms to people is that other people open accounts in your name. They don't pay the bills, and, and you're not liable for the amount that they've spent, but often the bad debt ends up on your credit report. So this was something that came up on our radar, and we began to see that there were problems with people's credit reports, not because they were sort of innocent errors, but because other people were involved in misdeeds and it was showing up on their credit reports. So um, we got involved that way. But then when Congress became more focused on the um, issue, they directed the FTC to take certain initiatives um, to um, step up on identity theft. And that was, first of all, because we had been so involved on the issues having to do with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and we understood what it was, some of the um, challenges for victims of identity theft. But they also saw us as a key player with respect to criminal law enforcement. Now, identity theft clearly is a crime, and it was a crime before Congress passed a law in, in 1998. But generally, before that time, it was seen as a violation against the companies that were defrauded. Right, because they, they lost the money. They get your information, mm -hmm. and, and they go to pennies, and they open up a credit card account, and they always saw pennies as the victim. But we knew, Mari, you certainly knew, that the consumer herself was also a victim and had to endure a tremendous amount of heartache, time, and effort, and money to clean up their name, clean up their um, credit report, and all of that. And Congress um, 
saw that it was important for law enforcement to get much more engaged in this. The Federal Trade Commission had already developed a database for law enforcement on consumer fraud issues generally, you know, get-rich-quick schemes. We make this data available to law enforcement through a shared secure database, and they said to us, you need to do the same thing for identity theft, because as long as law enforcement is only seeing one or two complaints, they're not going to take action. But if they see a whole database, you know, if they see an aggregation of complaints, it's more likely that they will pursue an investigation. Right. And so that we both held the data. Um, that was critical for law enforcement. We already understood a lot of the laws involved in this. And we had done a fairly impressive job of consumer education and outreach in lots of other fields. So these were the three components that Congress directed us to take charge at, in giving us this clearinghouse role with respect to identity theft. You have a fantastic website with super information. You want to give that website so everyone can listen and can go and visit it? I'd like to give it as many times as you'll let me. So, okay. um, and it is really a phenomenal website. It's ftc.gov slash ID theft. Right. Now, if when you go to that site, you're going to find a myriad of materials. If you're just interested in looking, and, and you're luckily not a victim of identity theft, you'll find guides on how best to safeguard your information, meaningful steps that you can take to make it less likely that you'll be a victim of identity theft, and other issues, other, other ways to safeguard your privacy. Uh, when we talk about privacy, part of the violation of privacy is identity theft, but there are other issues about privacy, about protecting children online, about um, guarding against things like spyware. So, so what are the technological tools that you can install? on your computers to make it less likely that a bad guy is going to get in there with some malicious code and uh, either corrupt your computer or even far worse, capture keystrokes that allow them to invade your uh, accounts that you may use and access online. So there's a wealth of material. Um, moreover, if you do find that you've become a victim of identity theft, it's a one-stop shop for all the tools that you need to empower yourself to go about repairing the damage, so how to contact the credit reporting agencies, how to file a police report, how to dispute fraudulent trade lines on your credit report. And it, there's also an affidavit up there that you helped. You were very instrumental, Mari, in helping to develop a single affidavit that victims can use to dispute accounts. So instead of having to fill out five different affidavits for five different banks or creditors, you can fill out this one and attach all of the relevant documents to it, and that has really eased the burden on victims substantially. Right, and I love it also that, that you have the laws up there, you have the federal laws, you have some of the state laws up there. And it's uh, in English and Spanish. Right, exactly, well. so that the Hispanic-speaking people can get some help, too. One of the things that I, I thought was really great that you also have on that website that's been very helpful, I think, for everyone is to see some of those surveys. And um, you've, you've had surveys last year, at the end of last year, and you had a recent survey. Can you tell us about some of the surveys you've done and what you've learned from those about identity theft? Such an interesting question, because I think when we all started looking at identity theft, there were no good metrics. How big a problem is it? And some people who at the time were considered alarmists said, well, we think between 750,000 and a million cases a year. And these people were generally dismissed as there's no, there's no basis for this. It's not a scientific survey. You're just making these numbers up. And maybe there was an element of truth to that. So in 2003, we conducted a survey. And we found that that 750,000 number really was baseless because the problem was far greater. That in the course of a year, um, 10 million people were victims of some kind of identity-related crime from the simple misuse of an existing account 
that is if someone came across your credit card number and made purchases on your credit card number, to the much more serious and injurious complete takeover of your identity where new accounts are opened. Perhaps people file for bankruptcy, they're employed in your name, and in some cases even being arrested in your name. So the survey really gave us a sense of the enormity of the problem. So 10 million people, it also revealed that the cost to businesses, which of course ultimately is absorbed by us, is um, close to $50 billion, $50 billion with a B in the course of one year. And then consumers themselves, the victims, spending another $5 billion out of pocket in order to repair their credit. And that would go into lawyers' fees, perhaps, or notarization, certified mail, all of the things. So I think this really was a wake-up call to everyone. These numbers were just out, you know, astounding, right. absolutely astounding. And industry also got a wake-up wake up call that even if they were prepared to absorb all of the costs associated with the fraud, people didn't want to do business with companies who um, had slipshod practices in terms of opening new accounts or dealing with victims of identity theft. So it's changed our consciousness to such a great extent. That survey we did in 2003, Mari, and we realized things have changed. New laws have come into effect. So we have just finished collecting data on a new survey based upon the same sort of questions so we can look at what was it like in 2003 and then fast forward to 2006 and see what the changes are. We hope to have those numbers out in the early part of the fall. Now, you also did another study recently that was uh, just came out at the end of 2005, and it was about fraud and, and other scams, including identity theft. What were some of the interesting things that you found out there? Well, you know, these things are interesting but also highly disturbing. So some of the results on the fraud survey showed that there are a lot of old wine and new bottles. Internet fraud certainly is big, but sometimes it's just the same old scam done online rather than by phone and mail, and a lot of that is pyramid schemes and get rich quick. We also found that you're much more likely to become a victim if you're a member of a minority group living on an Indian reservation. There were very high victimization rates among those populations that uh, tell us that we need to do a much better job of outreaching those populations to give people the information that they can use to discern what's a good deal and what's a ripoff. You know, I thought it was also interesting. A lot of people usually thought of just the elderly really being targets for fraud, but you found the age groups um, to be a little bit different, didn't you? You know, fraud, like many others, is an equal opportunity business. <laughs> um, and right. so, but there are the numbers all over. So our survey showed that, you know, younger members of the population are just, if not more, likely to become victims of fraud. It's not true that once you hit 60, you'll fall for every sucker rap that's out there. On the other hand, we know that there are particular vulnerabilities in certain parts of the population. AARP just the other day came out with some numbers on telemarketing fraud that does indicate that perhaps older Americans are more likely to become victims of that kind of fraud. But, you know, we're constantly looking for the metrics because we want to know where best to put our law enforcement resources as well as our consumer education resources. I think it's critical that people have the information that they can use to, to best avoid um, frauds and scams. But that's one of the interesting things about identity theft. I mean, I've been a consumer protection lawyer for a long time, and the message has always been take these steps and, and you should be pretty free and clear, you know. Don't it's not, if it sounds too good to be true. It, it is. is. Yeah. You have to work hard to make money. No one's going to offer you a big income for just, right? You know, sending out envelopes. Um, identity theft, identity fraud. You can do everything right, 
You know that more. Yes, right? You can do yes. everything right. You check your credit reports. You religiously shred every piece of information that comes in that has any kind of identifying information. You don't respond to those phishing emails. And nonetheless, right. you could become a victim. And, and that's because there are so many different places that have that sensitive number, the social security number, which is the key to the kingdom of identity theft. And, and that's so far beyond our control, whereas like if someone calls you and you get suckered into investing or sending money overseas, I mean, you took initiative yourself, whereas in identity theft, you don't take any initiative. It can, your information could be in your bank and, your, and you know the bank information is stolen and then you become a victim of identity theft or your doctor's office, right? So that's what it is. It's beyond your control. Certainly in California, we've heard a lot of breaches at educational institutions, which exactly. have customarily used social security numbers for student IDs. I'm really happy to see that almost all of them are backing away from this, but there are old legacy databases right. that have the social security number in them. So we urge companies to reevaluate how they use that number. I tend to think of these as gratuitous uses of social security numbers. Same with, you know, medical offices frequently will ask for your social security number. And when people do that, it's okay to say, do, why do you need that? Is there some other piece of information that would, right. you know, do as well? Or maybe you don't need it at all. Why would you need my social security number so I can rent um, movies at, at the video shop? Right. You know, the concern for, like, our grandson who's in the Air Force, his his uh, You can't dog possibly tech. have a son, yeah. grandson in the Air Force. <laughs> we do. He's 19 <laughs> years old, and uh, he wears, you know, he came home, he was so excited, and he's wearing his dog tag. And I look at his dog tag, and what's on there? Obviously, his Social Security number. And, and you know, all of the military cards have the Social Security number, and the Medicare cards. What's happening? Is Congress really taking a look at that since we've had this big VA breach about changing the, the, the military number and the Medicaid number and the Medicare number so that we don't use that as the identifier? Everyone's looking at it. Um, Congress is certainly, they came down hard on the Veterans Administration after that dreadful uh, loss of data on 24 million veterans and active duty soldiers. There are... Um, enormous systems built around the social security number so no one thinks that this can be done in a day but we're certainly raising awareness at this the people in the military have said that their non-military spouses and and dependents have to provide their social security number at the px right you know family I, centers and what's yeah. that all about so the one thing that is very big now is that um, the president has established an identity theft task force, which is led by the attorney general and the chairman of the Federal Trade Commission. And part of the mandate of this task force is to figure out ways to reduce the risk of identity theft. And certainly one of the things that we're looking at is identification and authentication and over-reliance on Social Security numbers. So we're going to try to you know, do some really creative, good thinking on this and, and see what kind of proposals we can make. I think it's going to take a lot of work. This is not an overnight solution um, either to identity theft, nor is there an overnight solution to the Social Security number because it's complex. It's woven into so many of the ways that we do business. But I think we do, we, that's exactly where we are. We need to figure out ways to make the Social Security number less available. And right. we need to make, figure out ways to make it less valuable. Exactly. So. I just want to introduce you again. We're speaking with Betsy Broder, who is an attorney with the Federal Trade Commission. She has been a, a tremendous 
a help to consumers for, for many years. And um, she's talking to us about privacy and identity theft. And she's the assistant director of the Federal Trade Commission's Privacy and Identity Theft Division. Now, getting back to um, the all of these security breaches, you know, we've a lot of this obviously has happened because of the California's lead in our security breach law. Now, um, what have you know, the Federal Trade Commission has really looked into this. And what are some of the lead cases that the FTC has taken with regard to protecting consumers and identity theft? Well, the biggie, of course, is our a case against ChoicePoint following the data security breach. We found um, our set, we have a settlement with them. We have a payment. They've made a payment of $15 million in settlement of our claims that they failed to have adequate and reasonable security, and that they failed to comply with other federal laws that would prevent someone from getting unauthorized access to this critical information. Um, so we have a few of those cases involving data security, some of them with companies that chose to dispose of consumer-sensitive records by tossing them out in the dumpster. Not a good idea. Right. Um, we have other cases that are more sort of pure privacy. For example, a case against the company Eli Lilly, that had a list serve for Prozac users, and generally people would get a copy of the email on this list serve, and it would be blind copied. But they sent one out with everybody's email address oh, dear. on the through line. Imagine how you feel about that. Now right. the whole world knows what kind of medications you're on, and so. But we're very, very um, engaged in the whole data security area, not because we think that data security has some sort of elegance that companies need to have certain types of technology. But when companies lose your information, you're at risk of harm. And right. that's what we're very, very concerned about. So um, the, one of the other cases was uh, DSW, Designer Shoe Warehouse. They had a cash register program, um, a financial transactions program, in which they would keep and store the information from your credit cards and from your checks. And which is very commonplace in the business. The only problem was that theirs was frighteningly easy to um, hack into. And so our complaint against them alleged that they didn't implement fairly inexpensive intrusion detection um, tools, that they used the default password that was universally used by everyone who had access to the system, again, making it very easy for someone to hack into the system, which is exactly what happened. Right. Um, and BJ's Wholesale, the same kind of theory, same kind of case. And we have a number of cases under investigation. We are also spending a lot of time telling companies what our expectations are. When, if companies say, well, gee whiz, I didn't know I had to do something special, it shouldn't be news that when you have custody of something that belongs to, you know, that is associated with someone else and has value, and if you lose it, you right. know, people are at risk. So we're, we do a lot of outreach with business, with, especially with small businesses, to make them aware of their critical importance in helping protect consumers from this sort of harm. And they've done a lot of studies afterwards to see how costly it is for companies that have experienced breaches. It's not just their reputational loss, although that's substantial, but they spend a lot of money notifying consumers, thanks in part, as you said, to the California law. And uh, they often provide credit monitoring services for the victims. And again, that's quite costly. So companies don't want to find themselves on the wrong side of this story. You know, when we worked on that California law, our security breach law, we, we really were trying to do the stick and the carrot at the same time because the security breach law says that um, any company or governmental agency that finds out that there has been a breach of electronic information that has been 
unencrypted, in other words, it was not encrypted, mm -hmm. that they would have, that would be the trigger to, to notify. And um, so we were hoping that that would, uh, you know, encourage companies to encrypt and take greater security measures to protect information. And, and you know, you know, there's a huge list of, like you said, universities and banks and various governmental agencies that have had security breaches. And I'm just wondering, um, I know that there's different levels of encryption, but, you know, is the Federal Trade Commission giving a list? I know even even the Federal Trade Commission in June had a, had a breach with a lost laptop. That's right. So so what happened with that? I mean, can you? T I mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but, but it's <laughs> no, been that's the, okay. It's been in the paper, Betsy. So you know, of the, course. And uh, we came. We we announced it as soon as as we learned about it. There were two attorneys who were filing a case. They had their laptops with them, so there they were on a fraud case, and they had to have certain data with them. Um, on the case, some of it was investigative information related to the case they were filing. It was in the back of a vehicle. The vehicle was broken into, and a number of items were stolen, including the laptops. And so there was information on about a hundred people, uh, people who had been targets and, and other associated persons. And their you know, social security cases. number was was in there, right? In some of the cases, yes, yeah. not all of them, and in some cases, bank account information. Yeah. And so you know, we are not perfect. It <laughs> and can happen to anybody. The hard way. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> I said it can happen to anybody, right? I mean, it really can happen to small businesses, large businesses. I hear from everybody. You know, it, it's scary for any of us. Right. It was, it was, um, we've had wake-up calls to, before. Certainly everything was password protected on the computers. But we realize we are safeguarding people's information, and we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard as well. So um, that's what we're doing, and within days, the chairman had issued directives on how we handle our information and what we can and cannot take out of the office, and uh, things are getting locked down. Right. That's not a bad thing. Not a bad I, thing I was just going to say, you know, I was at a, at a meeting uh, just recently with, with, you know, Fortune 500 companies and, and some audit companies, and we were discussing just this issue. I mean, all of us are vulnerable. Me too. You know, this is why I don't have any sensitive information on my laptop that I take out, you know, anywhere. But um, but but the reality is is that every business listening, if if you're a doctor driving by and you've got a social security number in there, a dentist, an accountant, you know, any financial industry, you know, we every single one of us is really vulnerable. If it can happen to the Federal Trade Commission, it can happen to me. And and so I'm not pointing fingers, but it just brings us to this level of how are we going to safeguard this information that that we're in charge of? And I'm just wondering, you know, if if, if encryption is is at least one of the answers. I mean, what is certainly encryption is something that companies should decide on. We're not in the business of saying if it's this, use that, right? Uh, because technology is changing all the time. Exactly. And what may be good encryption now is easily crackable next week. Right. So I'm not sure, sure that, um, and, and again, I'm speaking just for myself here, right, not necessarily right, right, for right. the Federal Trade Commission, right. but sometimes encryption is not enough, and sometimes encryption is more than enough. So consider the type of data that you're um, maintaining and what the appropriate level of security is for it. Right. And also, do you really need to collect it in the first place? You'd be much better off if you don't even have it. So people should consider whether it's really essential for them right. collecting account number or social security number, or if they do have it, how long do you need it? 
Exactly. One of the problems with the um, DSW case, they maintained this information far longer than they had any business need for. So we're not out there telling people how to run their businesses, just what they need to think about, because if you don't use these common-sense approaches, you may find yourself you know, in a situation where you never thought you'd be. It's like we all feel immune from crime. We don't think it will happen until it happens to us. Right. And we wish we'd taken those few easy steps to avoid Exactly, exactly. But with all of this brouhaha about these 80 or 90 million people who've had their sensitive information acquired by unauthorized persons, whether, you know, whatever, um, what's happening right now in Congress? I know there's, there's some bills that are pending. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. There are a couple really big ticket items out here. One of them, where California was in the forefront, is a notice provision that is requiring companies to provide notice to people when their information has been breached. And now we have quite a number of states that have already passed their own legislation, and Congress is thinking that there should be a national standard. They just can't decide what it is. And then there are some other um, disputes about the nature of this. But, but notice to consumers in the event of a breach is part of it. And the other part is that there be a national standard for data security. There already is a federal law that requires banks and other financial institutions to adopt certain security safeguards for consumers' sensitive personal information. But that law doesn't necessarily, doesn't extend beyond the financial Right, that's sector. the Gramm-Leach-Bliley, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So the Federal Trade Commission has used its general authority that prohibits unfair and deceptive practices to sue companies that do not have adequate and reasonable security. But that's... Um, I think we could be a little more precise, and companies would have a little more guidance if there were specific federal laws that established this. So those are the two issues. What I've heard as of today, um, or end of um, sorry, beginning of August, uh-huh. is that it's unlikely that anything will get out of Congress this year. Right. There's some big fights about it. About what should be the trigger for the security breach? Well, and there are big fights between committees, which is a, a, a ballet you can only appreciate in. <laughs> Washington, D.C. Sooner or later, something will happen because I think there's a, a push for some uniform standard out there. But those are the big issues, and Congress has a lot of interest. And perhaps this presidential task force on identity theft will push the issue so that Congress will have to take action. Now, has the Federal Trade Commission taken any position on on um, the type of bill or a model bill that they would like to see for security breach, for example? Our chairman has testified that she thinks that notification is appropriate, it should be given when the information is such that it puts the consumer at a significant risk of identity theft. And and how would that, who would be the one to decide that? The Federal Trade Commission, law enforcement? Who well, would... that's sort of an interesting question. It would be the company at the first instance would have to evaluate what the information is and whether it's appropriate to give notice. All of the laws, including the California, all of the bills, rather, including the California law, have a provision where you can delay notice if criminal law enforcement asks you to do so. Right. There may be instances where if you give notice to consumers, it tips off the bad guys and undercuts an investigation. We don't, no one wants that to happen. Right. We want to be able to give consumers notice as quickly as possible, but we also want to catch the bad guys who hacked in or stole the information from the system. Um, And so that, I think, is... um, a universal agreement on, but it was it would be the company in the first place, and then the question is if they don't give notice, uh, and the Federal Trade Commission, as an enforcement agency, believes that the information that had been breached would put consumers at a significant risk of identity theft, we could sue them. 
But how would they know? I'm thinking about when I, you know, when I testified with ChoicePoint and Axiom and LexisNexis back mm-hmm. in May of uh, last year, 2005. Um, I, there were questions to them, you know, in this hearing, and they all admitted that they had had breaches before our law became effective, and um, and they didn't tell. So how would you know? Um, you know, if there's just a bunch, I mean, most people don't ever find out how they became a victim anyway. You know that. Well, how they do you know that people are evading their taxes? You know, they don't tell you, but there are certain ways that you can find out and, and information gets released. The, um, but it wouldn't be as easy, <laughs> you know, is what I'm saying. Is That's right. That's, you, know. you know, there's a challenge there. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. And some people look for an object, objective standard that every time there's the loss of any information at all, yeah. consumers are notified. And the concern about that is that we'll all be getting notifications so frequently we will become immune to them. And then when something's really important, we're going to yeah. get another one of these notices and we won't pay any attention. Yeah. We won't be able to distinguish the ones between um, where there's a real likelihood that the information will fall into the wrong hands. Let's say that's the choice point case right. where people actually did use this information to open up new accounts and commit identity theft right. to the VA incident where they recovered the hard drive. and, and um, Hopefully it wasn't copied. And, and the likelihood is that it wasn't copied or, or otherwise right. Um, right. access. Well, but on the other hand, if you yeah. look at it, Betsy, I mean, from everybody that I've talked to, because of our initial security breach law, there has been a tremendous push in companies to really secure data more. I mean, you know, the fact that, for example, the Federal Trade Commission had this problem and they had to disclose it and they did it honorably and the chairman said, you know what, we're going to make some changes. I mean, that has made a tremendous impact in people. Maybe it was a stick, but on the other hand, look what it did. It, it really has fostered a tremendous amount of change, and some companies are working very hard to secure data and to restrict collection like you were talking about. And to, um, I mean, it's done good work. <laughs> it really has worked, hasn't it? I think it has worked tremendously. And if people say, oh, look, ever since the California law went into effect, companies are being breached. No, we're just learning about it. Mm-hmm. It probably happened before, and no one gave it a second thought. Right. But the California law really opened people's eyes up to the importance of this notification. Absolutely. And it has done good work for uh, consumers in that it has really um, put some, some enthusiasm into really protecting the data more. Let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act because um, the Federal Trade Commission has really been charged with a, a great deal more um, under that too, right? I mean, um, one of the issues that I wanted to ask you about was I get a lot of calls from consumers who have put a fraud alert on, um, for example, if they're a victim of breach or um, if they're a victim of identity theft, and then they find out that even though they only have to call one company, that indeed the other two companies have not put the fraud alert on. And, and, and so what, can the, what is the Federal Trade Commission doing about that kind of a thing? Well, I know you have a really sophisticated um, audience out there, but let me just give a little more background on this in case people are not 
clear as what you're talking about. It's not that sophisticated. You're right. We're on <laughs> campus. And no, and that's so, fine. I appreciate that. So if you're a victim of identity theft or if you think that you're at risk of identity theft because your wallet has been stolen or you've received one of these breach letters, you can call one of the three major credit reporting agencies and report this, and they will put a fraud alert on your file. And then, as you say, they're supposed to convey that information to the other two agencies. That's Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. What the fraud alert does is it signals to any would-be creditor that they need to take additional steps before offering credit or other benefits in your name. So they need to take reasonable steps to verify the person in front of them is indeed who they say they are. So it's supposed to be a one-stop thing. You call one of them and and the fraud alert goes up on the other two. It doesn't always work perfectly. And I think when we've seen problems, it's because your information matches perfectly for the credit reporting agency that you've called first. But there's some discrepancy in your file with one of the other ones. That is, maybe the name doesn't match or, or the Address, identity theft yeah. has happened and has corrupted your file. Right. So you need to follow up with that other one to make sure that they are putting the fraud alert on the right file and not imposing it on somebody else's or it kind of it's a red flag for you to take further steps because there may indeed be problems associated with this. The other complaint that we've heard with respect to fraud alerts is that sometimes they don't work. Right. That is, you put your fraud alert on your file as a means of protecting yourself so that new accounts aren't opened. And then you find that new accounts are opened by the bad guy, notwithstanding the fraud alert. That's a real problem and, and right. something that we are very concerned about. The other problem, ironically, is if you have a fraud alert on your file and you want to open up a new account. You, you go down to the store and, and you want to open up an account and you get an outright denial. Even though there's a, a notification on your credit file that says, uh, call at this number to verify identity. Right. And so you call and there's the cell phone. You can say, yes, it's me. I'm standing here at the cash register. Right, so right. I want to open up the account. Right. But, That's why we but, tell everybody to, to put their cell phone right. you know, because they can do that. Right. Just outright deny credit which, right. again, is, is a violation of a different law that we enforce and, and equally problematic for consumers. So it's not working perfectly by any means, but we think it's working pretty well in most cases. But we're also concerned about the outliers. You know, we're still tweaking the edges of right. uh, the, the FACT Act, which amended the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and this is one of the issues that consumers and consumer advocates like yourself have raised. And so we are in continual conversation, dialogue, if you will, with the credit reporting agencies to get them to make sure that where they can make improvements, they will. Right. Well, but that has to do with the creditors. If, if they're denied credit outright, that has more to do with the creditors than the More creditors. to do with the yeah. creditors, but it also may have to do with, with how the information is conveyed. Oh, I see. Yeah. Another, another problem, um, under the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act, a consumer is supposed to be able to get all documentation of the fraud from the company that issued the fraud account. And that's been a real problem, too. I don't know if you're seeing a lot of those complaints, but I hear that from people that they, they um, you know, a victim will say, I'm the victim of fraud, here's my affidavit, here's my police report or my identity theft report, and here's where I live, and I would like copies of everything with regard, you know, all the documentation that you have with regard to this account. And under the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act, they're supposed to be able to get that information, yet still many companies are saying you have to file a lawsuit and subpoena those records first. That's right. And uh, actually, this was a very, very important provision because before it went into effect, you would 
contact the company and you would say, I'm getting bills for this account. I didn't open the account. Right. And so I, I want to see a copy of the application because with that application, I can prove that that's not my signature. Exactly. And, and then they would respond, well, you said it's not your account, so we can't give you a copy right. of the application. On I the other hand, <laughs> please pay the bill. So right. they were yeah. sort of stuck in this catch-22. Exactly. So this provision went into effect that was supposed to give consumers access to those transaction or application documents, and they could get themselves out of this quagmire. Right. Except companies are not sufficiently aware of what their obligations are here. It's even worse than you do. I shouldn't say it's even worse. There's another component, because frequently, beforehand, police officers would have to get subpoenas to get these records. Right. But now, under the amendments, a law enforcement agency can be authorized by the consumer to get these records without a subpoena. Right, which is great help to law enforcement. If they can actually get them. Right. So we are pushing out information both to law enforcement and to the business community of what their obligations are under this provision. It's a hard one to enforce as a law enforcement agency because generally you have to show a pattern of, of this sort of problem, and these tend to be singular issues. We think that we can be effective also in doing outreach to creditors and to businesses and to law enforcement on what their obligations are and how best to take care of consumers here, because it really is a critical piece of evidence. Often victims of identity theft are their own best detectives. If they put the case together, um, it's much more likely that they can hand it off to law enforcement and have something done about it. But in order to do so, they need to get these baseline documents, and this provision is an important one. We wish it worked better, and we're out there trying to push out information, both to law enforcement and business, as I said, so that consumers are better taken care of. Right. You know, you have so many wonderful little booklets and brochures that you can download on the on the website for consumers. I, and I saw you have a, a section there for businesses as well, like on security breaches and what to do and, and how to safeguard information. That would be really helpful. And I don't know if you have this on there, um, but I would like to to see something like that, like a little brochure on your business section about what are your duties in terms of providing this data if there is a fraud account. Do you have something like that up there, Betsy? It's interesting. We were just um, this week putting together information for law enforcement on that, but I will also double-check to see what we have on complying with this provision of the FACT Act because it's an important one for consumers and it makes their lives so much um, easier in repairing the damage. This is the kind of documentation that they need to show the creditor that it's not their account, to uh, dispute the trade line on their credit report, and sometimes to get law enforcement interested in prosecuting the crime. Exactly. And um, I'll tell you, if you put that up there, I will just have people download it and send it with their letter demanding, you know, or asking for this information, because then they say, this is from the Federal Trade Commission website. Well, there is, they information, have... there is information there uh, about this provision. We, right. we refer to it by its statutory number 609E right. of um, the Fair Credit Reporting Act. But I mean, if it explained, like, you know, where they really understand what their real duties are. Do you know well, what I, I mean? Yeah. I'm going to go to work tomorrow, and I'm going to double check. Okay. And when you and if you have something like that, tell me, and then I can, you know, refer people to do that because that that I think would would be very helpful to to consumers to be able to get this because, as you said, um, law enforcement it's it's very very time consuming to investigate these cases and ask for this information. Whereas if the victim gets it to them on a silver platter, they're like you said, they're more likely. To take the case. Which is a great segue for me, if I may, because one of the things we want is more prosecution of identity theft criminals. It, it's um, for too long has been too easy and too profitable a crime. And one of the ways that we can help 
the cops work these cases is to give them as much complaint data as possible. So I referred earlier to our identity theft website at ftc.gov slash ID theft and all of the great materials that are there to help consumers. But another important element on our website is our online complaint form. And this is a way for us to collect information about the identity theft, how it happened, what you know about the suspect. And we take this and we push this information into the secure database that we share with law enforcement around the country. So there are over 1,400 law enforcement agencies that have direct 24-7 access to this complaint data. We now have more than a million complaints in our file. So instead of having, you know, the one person who comes into their um, precinct and says, this happened to me, they can take that information and then go into our database and find that there are five or six other complaints matching the same characteristics. Suddenly, suddenly, this is a case worth looking at, and this is worth pursuing. And so from local law enforcement, local sheriffs, to the FBI and Secret Service and the Postal Inspection Service, they're all working in the same pool of data. They're looking at a much larger pool of data than what they might just get in their offices. And this is essential to get um, really track down the people who are taking information and misusing it to commit fraud and damaging your good name. That's such an important point, Betsy, because many of these fraudsters are really working over several jurisdictions. And so when the law enforcement are working together, they can see these patterns and they can maybe find out that there's patterns that they didn't even think that existed. So, there's a great task force in San Diego that right. um, works both from, from the local prosecutors and investigators up to the FBI, figuring out who best to take the case. Is it an interstate case, in which case it goes federal, or is it purely local? Let's hand it off to the state guys. And what a great way to do business. And it really has had a great impact. Unfortunately, California has either a large uh, amount of identity theft or a large number of people who report it. But this is the kind of collaboration and cooperation that we think is essential to attack this problem. Yeah, speaking about identity theft in, in California having so much identity theft, a lot of your surveys have really shown which states have the most identity theft and which metropolitan areas, which has been, I thought, fascinating as well, that we could find out that San Bernardino County here in California has been one of the one of the top places for identity theft. Well, I, I, I like to look at it from a different perspective, <laughs> that the people who become victims of identity theft in San Bernardino are more likely to report it. Right. And so they have a higher awareness of what the problem is and how to deal with it. So when we look at, at San Bernardino County or certain areas in, in Arizona, for right. instance, where, that have very high levels, um, Arizona is also the state of the original author of the identity theft bill. Maybe it's just they're more aware. Right. Or maybe it's more prevalent. We also know that there is a strong tie-in between identity theft and the use and, and production of methamphetamines. Yes. Meth heads have all the time in the world to piece together little pieces of paper and track down information, and they're notoriously adept at committing identity theft. So places where you have high meth use and production, you will find a high rate of identity theft, generally on a local level. Right. And and there's another issue, too, about that I've read about that, you know, because we have, we're so close to the border, and, and people coming into our country and wanting to come in and, and work here have to use a social security number, and we have a high rate of people who are here um, as, you know, illegally that are using social security numbers to work so that they can, you know, make the money to support their families. And right, and, and sometimes and, they are, that's collusive, that is, someone yes. will agree to share their social that's security right. number, and sometimes 
they are fabricated social security numbers and their employers are not taking the efforts and sometimes they're stolen. Right, by right. Someone. All different ways. Let me just reintroduce you. We are speaking with a wonderful attorney from Washington, D.C., who is an attorney with the Federal Trade Commission. We're speaking with Betsy Broder and she is um, the assistant director. Let me see. I want to make sure I say this right. <laughs> You've had so many hats. She is the assistant director for the Federal Trade Commission's Privacy and Identity Theft Division, and she has got her heart in this. And obviously you can hear from how wonderful she speaks that she's very passionate about this as well. Betsy, I had a question. You know, one of the statistics that I had gotten from, you know, law enforcement in in California was that about 10% of the cases that are reported to law enforcement are actually investigated, and of those, only about 10% are prosecuted. Do you have any kind of figures? I mean, those were kind of thrown together at the uh, governor's conference that I went to. So do you have any figures that are really based on anything from your law enforcement um, collaboration? None whatsoever. <laughs> Sorry to say. I, I can tell you this. It's pretty low. I'm, uh, that sounds like 1% of all cases are investigated, which is frighteningly low. But one of the things that we're working on with the U.S. Department of Justice is to keep better track of these numbers. It, law enforcement is funny. So you have someone who commits identity theft, and at the same time, you can charge them with wire fraud and mail fraud and forging a false instrument, whatever else you want to throw in there. And you don't necessarily need to charge identity theft. And for some prosecutorial reason, they choose not to do it, or in the plea bargain process, they plead it out. Yeah. Um, and so that may not show up as an identity theft prosecution, but that was an identity theft case. So it would be interesting to get better numbers on that and see how effective our efforts are. I mean, we want to get the bad guy, but we also want to know what works well in tracking down the bad guys. And as we try to tweak the system, the only way to find out is, you know, cause and effect. You do this and see what the result is. So the more we can see what the results are, the more we can see what works in restricting access to data, putting better data security up there, making the social security number less valuable, telling consumers not to carry all of that personally identifying information in their wallet. Um, uh, all of those are important things, but we need to be able to measure, you know, what works well so we can right. do more of it. Now, when I know you have the outreach to law enforcement. Is there any thought about the Federal Trade Commission doing a survey with all of this law enforcement? You know, they're all working with you on the Sentinel, the database. Is there any chance of you doing a survey to find out of the cases that come to them, um, how many of those are actually investigated and how many of those are prosecuted? We would love to be able to find out of the million identity theft complaints that we've made available, how many of them have led to prosecution. At the same time, we know that criminal law enforcement officers are overtaxed in every regard. Right. And if we were to ask them to supply information, it's unlikely. I mean, that's just not top on their list of priorities. Right. So we do try to figure out ways to assess how useful our approach is. So we evaluate how many hits there are in our system, how many searches there are in our database. And that's some sort of measure, but we can't necessarily find out. We have not pursued the question you ask, which is yeah. how many of these have led to successful prosecutions. I would I would hope that maybe the president's um, task force on identity theft would, would at least consider that, maybe giving some kind of carrot <laughs> to 
um, those particular agencies that are that are actually getting prosecutions or something, you know, where you where you have some benefit. Because I, I know because I'm a sheriff reserve, so I know how these guys are overtaxed. I mean, I work with our law enforcement agencies, and well, we have a long list of recommendations um, that we're working on for this task force, and one of them is to uh, figure out how better to assess the impact. You know, are these cases being brought? Right. And you know, not every not every complaint warrants a federal case, if you right. will. Right, sure, but, sure. Um, when, when you see the cases that really could be brought and where oftentimes people will call up um, the Federal Trade Commissioner, they'll make an online complaint, and they'll say, this is where the thief lives. I know that because that's where they delivered the, the widescreen TV and, you know, all the right. other electronics. Uh, that's right. the address, and no one does anything. Right, and it drives them crazy. Ab- understandably. Yes. Understandably. Yeah, yeah. So I think part of the issue is making it more of a priority for law enforcement. And uh, and making it easier for them, too. I know one of the things that I had been talking with Joanna Crane, who's in your, in your office as well, is that there was some talk, and I don't know how far this got, about doing a universal ID theft report or, or a law enforcement report as, as you know, one that that everybody could kind of look at and it would be similar, whether it was in California or Illinois or D.C. or whatever. Whatever, is that going on? or is You know what I, I love about talking with you, Mari, is like we can talk total identity theft wonk. <laughs> <laughs> because this is, this is a project that makes my heart sing and no one else quite understands why. Because <laughs> so, um, I had vic- suggested it for the state of California, and then when I talked to... You know, Joanna, she said, well, you know, we're really working on that federally. And so I had made some suggestions, of course, you know, have to put my two cents in. And I just wondered if that really was going to happen, because that sure would help you as well. This is this is a, a great idea. Um, and so consumers often complained that they couldn't get a police report right. to, to reflect this. And we know that's because sometimes the, the cops are really busy and they can't give that kind of detailed police report or they just are not going to do it for some other reason. Right. So they figured, well, let's make it easier for the cops. And they that don't have way, the right form. That's another right. one. <laughs> so you go online to the FTC um, complaint form and you fill that out and within the next month or so we should have the capability to print it out. Then you walk down to your local police department and then they fill out an extra part of that form that validates that this is a police report and they, they authenticate that what you said is indeed true. You're not making it up. Right. And then, okay, so, so the cop's life is easier. Um, and we've enriched the database because you've put your complaint in the system. You have a copy now of a police report that you can use right. to um, Send get to an the extended creditors. fraud alert sure. on your credit report for a seven-year fraud alert. You can block fraudulent trade lines that are on your credit report without having to go through the dispute process. You can provide it to creditors. I mean, and so everyone's it's a win-win-win. And we are working very closely with the International Association of Chiefs of Police and through this task force to make this a reality. Because just like the affidavit does for victims that you bring to companies, you know, to dispute the accounts, this right. is something that makes life easier. It's a recognizable form, and it should help the consumers immeasurably relieve the burden on, on the police departments and, as I said, enrich our database. Well, I'm so glad that's getting off. Yeah, you'll have to let us all know so we can help consumers to know more about that, too. Absolutely. Let me ask you about this. How about all this stuff, uh, that identity theft that occurs that does not appear on the credit report? That seems to be the hardest for me to help victims, whether it's criminal identity theft, which is about the worst thing, or if it's medical identity theft, where someone is using your identity to get an operation or get health insurance 
or whether it's DMV identity theft where you can't, you know, you can't even renew your license. All those types of things. Like oh, work, you left out my comp, favorite. Workers' comp, disability. No, IRS. Oh, IRS. Yeah, <laughs> I've, had, I've had those two where somebody files a tax return and gets your refund in another state. Oh, that, that's a fun one. So what is what are we doing about that, Betsy? That's a, terrible. Um, those are real hard work. Um, people filing bankruptcy in your name. Right. And generally there are separate procedures depending upon the type of problem you've encountered. For example, medical identity theft. As we say, you know, check your credit report and, and make sure you know what's on your credit report. You can do the same thing with your health records. You don't have that same federal right to give it, but, you know, these are your health records, and you can ask your provider to, to give you um, copies when you get your annual statements from your health insurer to make sure that everything on there is accurate and reflects your transactions and that someone else is not using your health insurance number in order to get benefits. So, so that's key. But in each case, it requires a much more customized follow-up and, and remedy. And sometimes they're statutory. Sometimes there are offices that help you with this. For example, with the IRS, there is the Office of the Taxpayer Advocate right. that will work with people who have these gnarly questions and, and problems. But it takes a tremendous amount of perseverance, which is why you know, millions of hours are spent by identity theft victims cleaning up their report. Just recently, I was traveling abroad, and I came home, um, and a month later I got a phone call from my credit card issuer asking me if I had paid a utility bill in Tel Aviv recently. Well, no, I had not, but somehow or other someone had come across my credit card number. They called me because it was an aberrant use of my credit card. Right. And you know, I didn't have to pay the amount. They closed out my account. I got a new account the next day, and, and life went on. Right. And now, that's, so that's the easy kind of form. Yeah. <laughs> insignificant form of identity. I, not insignificant, but, you know, but easy easier. to go. Yeah. But far different than if someone uses my information um, in employment and accrues tax liability in my name. They get arrested in my name. Then, of course, I'm going to be spending a fair amount of time trying to undo this. One of the things that people ask, though, um, with respect to identity theft, people have had a really hard time say, you know, I just want to change my Social Security number. Oh, gosh. That is <laughs> the bane of my existence if I could only change my Social Security number. So, Mari, what do you tell people? I tell people no, not unless it's a child, because I have had too many clients who've had their whole life destroyed because they tried to change their social security number because the databases from the old social security number linked to the new ones. And so they look more suspicious. So that's what I tell people because I've, I've dealt with too many victims who've had that happen to them. And you can understand their frustration at wanting to do this. On right. the other hand, the other alternative is at age 47, they have no credit history. Right. Because they're a blank <laughs> slate. And that's not so good either. That looks like you've been serving a very long sentence in prison for something you don't want I to know. talk about. Exactly. So, um, yeah, we, we generally tell people it, it is sometimes it feels like an overwhelming process, but it's essential that they work it out. Um, well, I got I got to interrupt you. Lloyd says we only have two minutes, so I would like to give you the opportunity in the last two minutes to tell us, um, you know, your website again and what you think should be done or what you would like from people who are listening to do. I'm going to make a very narrow pitch. We can all be advocates. We can all be advocates for privacy and to protect our identity. And one way is we all have access to lots of friends, to community groups, to houses of worship, and we can promote the message of data security. We have developed a identity theft training kit 
that we call Deter, Detect, Defend. And a lot of it is available on our website at ftc.gov slash idtheft. There is a video, um, a, a disc, there's a PowerPoint presentation, and there's lots of other materials so that you yourself can make a presentation to your community to raise consciousness on how best to protect your identity, to, to make it less likely that you will um, fall victim to this. So that's something that I would direct people to on our website, and if they want to get more information, they can follow up that way. And again, if you're a victim of identity theft, come to our website. You know, there are lots of things that you can do by yourself. Um, if you have more trouble, you can go to, they can go to see you, Mari. Yeah. But, but there are lots of measures that consumers can and should take to help remedy this. And finally, Mari, I want to thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. I always learn a tremendous amount talking to you, oh. and it's been a real pleasure. You have been so wonderful, and you always have been for, for many years at the Federal Trade Commission. They are so privileged to have you there, and thank God for you. That's how I say it. I mean, we all know <laughs> what, all the great work that you do, and we really appreciate you, Betsy. So we oh, thank you again, and you'll come back after you have your new survey that comes out. We're going to invite you back, and I hope you'll come back and tell us about it. Thank you so much, Mari. Okay, you've been listening to Betsy Broder, who is the Assistant Director of the Federal Trade Commission's Privacy and Identity Theft Division. Um, you've also been listening to Privacy Piracy. I'm Mari Frank. You can learn more about our wonderful guests, listen to our previous interviews, and download our podcasts at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And listen to us next week from 5 to 6 p.m. here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and live video streaming at KUCI.org. Thank you, Lloyd, for your great engineering. And good night. See you next week at 5 o'clock. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.